Friends, welcome back to another episode. There is um, no easy way to put this, but this is one of the most um, intense and inspiring conversations I've ever had, and I am just incredibly excited to share Steve and the work of partners with you today, and I, I, I hope it leaves you longing for change and fighting for a better world. In 1994, my wife and I hiked into a refugee camp. We met a widow who uh, had suffered terribly. She was in a refugee camp, um, and on the floor of her bamboo hut was a little four-year-old girl. We asked what the girl's story was, and she told us that pro-democracy soldiers went to a village that had been attacked uh, to find survivors and document what happened. What they found, the only known survivor they found was this little girl. Um, mm -hmm. She was in a hiding place. The soldiers told her that probably um, her family was running while carrying her. And um, knowing that they would be caught, they hid this child and kept running to divert the attention of the soldiers. Mm -hmm. The soldiers never found the mom and dad, never found surviving relatives, but they found this little girl, carried her to the uh, to the Thai-Burma border, crossed the border into Thailand, into the refugee camp, to this woman that we had made friends with. Now, and then they asked this woman to be the foster parent of this little girl. That woman um, herself had uh, left the capital city of Burma like four or five years previous in order to, to start medical care for the refugees on the Thai side of the border because her husband was a medical um, practitioner, a doctor of sorts, and, um, and when they started that clinic, they were associated with these so-called anti-government people. When Rose went back to visit her family, the, her name was Rose, when she went back to visit her family, she ended up getting put in prison, and for nine months she was violated in that prison. Uh, her husband couldn't get her out after trying every possible way to get her out. Um, he basically drank himself to death, uh, and some of his colleagues that he trained gave him a sedative uh, of diazepam. His heart stopped and he died. Rose got out of prison three weeks later, made her way to the camp, and now she's, you know, her toddler children were being cared for by neighbors. Her husband's just been buried, and that's the woman that the soldiers brought this four-year-old to. So these stories deeply affected us, and when we heard her describe what happened, she looked up at us and asked us if we could help start some kind of safety net for kids like this uh, inside Burma, and um, we calculated the cost. The cost was $30 for a whole year of what this child needed, and so we said yes. And the work that we've done since then, um, as we've spread out into the, the other ethnic states in Burma, the countries where the war spills over, Bangladesh, China, um, and Thailand especially, uh, and then the other countries that we've gotten involved in, in the Middle East, in Yemen and Iraq, especially northern Iraq and, um, and in Syria, they all climb out of that story with Rose, this widow, and this little girl, an orphan. So that's really the story of how we started. And anytime I meet new people, that's the story I'll start, I'll start with. I'll talk about 
how a widow and an orphan in a refugee camp mm -hmm. um, really altered the course of my life and uh, all of the, the steps um, since then to build this organization we're really answering the questions of how does how does a widow and an orphan figure into the story of faith and what is what is the mandate that I'm walking in as a believer um, what is the mandate of care and love towards those vulnerable people the, the widow and the orphan put us on course to ask those questions and it's answering those questions that has led us into the work that we do now 26 years later Still doing it, yeah. Still doing it. Yeah, next year is our 26th anniversary. And give us a brief background of, you, you mentioned calculating $30. Can you explain to me how you came up that sum? Because you tell me $30, I'm like, that's breakfast for us, right? And you're talking <laughs> about caring for a child right. for a year. Yeah. Well, this camp was a part of the international community. So provision, food, and basic essentials were provided by the camp as soon as you're on the camp ledger. So once your story's checked out, uh, then you'll get the basic things you need to survive towards the event that you would be repatriated to a third country. So the, the camp is an intermediary step. It's a step that's meant to be short term, but because of political complexity, you know, after, after 30 years, those camps are still there. And whole generations of kids have been born and raised in those camps. So when we calculated the cost, it was sandals for the rainy season so that parasites aren't absorbed through the heel. It's, um, it's clothing for the child. She had one tunic, you know, they wear a hand-woven tunic. She had one and she should have two. Um, it was an umbrella, it was a blanket, it was a towel, um, it was a coin for the offering plate. She was a, a wonderful Anglican uh, woman, this, this lady Rose. Uh, and it was school fees and a few other things, including food uh, in the time that it would take for this child to get on that roster and be a part of the distributions that take place each, each week in the refugee camp. So the $30 was everything that little girl needed to get on her feet, uh, including food in that temporary uh, space where she wasn't getting food. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it was a way of enabling Rose to take her in without, um, without her having to find or share her own, which she would have done. So that's, that's where the $30 figure comes from. Um, Every week after we committed to that first little girl, um, the pro-democracy soldiers brought more kids to Rose. So, I mean, within a year, I think we had 67 kids living with Rose. Um, by 1998, we had, um, we had uh, more than 1,000 children living in eight camps in 12 different children's homes. Um, all, all the, you know, the in response to the same kind of stories as that first little girl. So these are kids that aren't orphaned because of poverty or social dynamics. They're orphaned because of war. Their villages are attacked, burned down, whatever. Everybody runs. Their parents may or may not survive. That's one reason they become orphans. The communities get separated and in the chaos, kids get 
you know, separated and end up alone in the jungle. Um, at times, you know, the village is attacked when the kids are out in the rice fields working with family or whatever, and those kids are separated then because of the attack. So the extenuating circumstances is what drives, you know, the, the child's life um, to being an orphan. And now partners, you know, you hear that story and, and my, my American savior mentality goes, Steve, I've got $30 for you. You know, go ahead and take it. Save the life of a kiddo. But that's not what partners is about, right? I mean, it's so much more than just a pair of sandals and a tunic, right? It's the back, holistic model of all of yeah. it. Yeah. Back then, I had a, a very um, old charity model conception of what, uh, of how I should relate to the poor. And so, I think back then I could, I could be accused of and be guilty of being the white savior mentality. Back then it really was simply, it's not right just to pray for this little child and leave. I should do something that corresponds with the sentiment. And, and it was um, the invitation of someone who could articulate the story that that child lived in and invite me to be a part of it. I couldn't walk away from it. Um, and I think in those early years, a lot of our responses were um, old charity model thinking, um, that we, we had the resources and the solutions that they lacked. And so if we could give them our knowledge and, and those solutions, that they could have a better life. And and that is just a that is a terrible way to think. That is what you just referenced. Um, we grew through really through trial and error. We grew through those mistakes, and eventually grew out of that way of thinking. Um, thinking about the 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 primary needs of a poor or or marginalized person. Most of their needs are not tangible to begin with. What they say they need are. Um, are the dignity of, of recognition and trust and, and, uh, and friendship. And, um, and it was experiences that helped us discover those intangibles. I, I remember um, <clears throat> one time I hiked um, with a group of soldiers through Karen State um, with an organization called Free Burma Rangers. They're, they're good friends of mine. And, and um, we came to a village that uh, that community, their, their village was burned down in 2006 and they had run for their lives from attacking Burma army soldiers from their hiding places, subsequent hiding places, 12 separate times. I remember it because I interviewed them. And um, it was the most uh, impoverished community I've ever seen. Um, and they had no living animals left. They had one dog left, which, which they fed my t our team. Um, but nothing to eat. They were just barely hanging on. It was a cold and terrible place. The Burma army was like two hours away. And, um, and they told us this story of, of just terrible trauma and suffering. And what I told them is, I'm very sorry, but we're out of everything. We don't have any food left. Our medical supplies are all gone. 
Um, we had blankets that we had been giving out. They're all gone. We had clothes. They're all gone. This is the end of a month-long walk inside, you know, this ethnic state. And uh, I'll never forget um, the elder in that village just looking up and laughing and smiling. And he said, we didn't need that stuff in the first place. <laughs> and I said, what? I said, what? And he said, okay, look, we appreciate your help and we need help. We're hungry and our kids are cold and, you know, and, and uh, we have these, these sicknesses that are preventable. And we know that. And um, if you had those things, we would accept with gratitude that help but what means more to us than anything else is that you came and oh. and and now that we know that we're the world hasn't forgotten the war that mm -hmm. we are subject to and um to us the thing that means more than anything else is that you came and what they reiterate on you know if you go back which i have um in these communities is you came back <laughs> <laughs> and um it's unexpected. They're used to um, they're, they're used to being a metric, or they're they're used to being um, pitied, and given things that you know. Um, they're often given things they don't even need because the mandate of that charity is to give that thing, and uh, and so to answer your question, yeah, thirty dollars um, was not what that child needed. But that child did need thirty dollars. It was a good thing to do, and it and it also, it also put a hook in my hypocrisy to to begin reading the Bible and looking at life through different eyes, um, and wanting to be more than just um, a band aid for for the poor, um, and in this case the refugee, um, wanting to be a part of a healing community that is present to what they who they are to their dignity, to the resources that they have available, which they have, and to working with them for um, something better. That's, mm -hmm. that's the evolving to this day story of Partners Relief and Development. We're still on that path. And now explain to us, uh, um, what is it that partners, when you come into a community today, what what are you doing? And, and is it Burma still or Myanmar and, um, you know, Yemen and Syria? What is, what does that look like? What all does partners offer? We do three things, relief, strengthening civil society and social structures like schools, and then sustainable community development. Those three things are all, all we do. And our wish is that we spent all of our time on the third thing, because that's when a father and a mother are providing for their children and living in a state of sheltered, you know, um, thriving existence. When, when um, they have the dignity of work and, and, um, and the relative stability socially so that they're not worried about tomorrow and, mm -hmm. and uh, whether or not the black-booted people are coming back. Um, however, it's a third of our budget two-thirds of our budget are spent on relief. And, um, and in the case of Myanmar where we started, you would think that the, the, the need for relief would abate, that it would slow down, especially now that the dictators have put on a suit, had themselves elected to the presidency, and, and, um, and now uh, are you know, living in the 
constitution that they actually wrote and voted in. Like, you would think that things would get better, um, and media would indicate that, some media, popular media. Um, but the fact is that even in, in the state we started in, in Karen State, uh, the attacks have never really gone away. Mm. They, have a, they have slowed down during peace talks, but during that slow time, the Burma army has um, enhanced their garrisons and their commands inside Karen State. So that there's really no going back to the days of, of defending their villages. They are now completely subject to the armed authority of this dictatorship. And the violence um, uh, has gone up and down, and now it's on an upswing again in Karen State. In, in most of the ethnic states in Myanmar, especially recently in Rakhine State with the Rohingya refugees that have you know, fled into Bangladesh, nearly a million of them, uh, the violence has um, not gone down, but has escalated. So what that means in, in that country and what that means in Yemen um, and in Syria is that our primary job is, is helping starving people find the food they need to face another day. It's helping people who don't have shelter over them during a rainy season or in the Nineveh desert, for example, um, have those things that they need just to survive. In the hierarchy of needs, having food and shelter is primary, and there isn't really anything you can do when those things are lacking. So we've chosen to work in that state of complexity where violence and political complexity you know, prevents children from, from having those basic things they need. Um, Right now, um, one good example is that we, uh, we had a team fly. We have an office in northern Iraq. We had a team fly there from uh, the other places that we work, kind of our all-star relief team. They've negoti negotiated their way now into Kurdish Syria, and they're helping families that are liberated from ISIS violence. This is just this week. Um, kind of the last physical command of ISIS has been defeated by the Kurdish resistance and allied forces, including the United States. Those families then that are freed from being human shields or freed from that violence are wandering in the desert looking for a safe place to sleep and for food for their families and the basic things that they need. Um, uh, a well-reported-on group of people that made it to a refugee camp and it, that's also another issue. It's not really a refugee camp when it's in their own country, but when these displaced people made it to a camp, um, they reported that 62 of their uh, community had passed away. They died while walking, mm -hmm. all from um, fatigue and starvation. Uh, and the, the, the bulk of those 62 people who died were infants. So that's why we're, our team is on the ground. Um, in fact, while we were talking earlier today, I was, there were calls about our team who are putting together these infant and newborn kits, as well as food and water to take into the desert to deliver to those families while helping them find a place where they can you know, find shelter uh, for this in interim period. So that's a long answer. It's relief and development that we do. The gentleman you work with, Tanner. Wonderful fellow.
Shout out to Tanner who is with us today. <laughs> hey, Tanner. <laughs> um, when I first sat with Tanner, he shared with me a picture from a school in Syria that had just been rebuilt that week. They finished the remodel. And Tanner said to me, um, in the middle of that conversation, even though the village so desperately needed food and medical supplies, what they asked partners to do was to rebuild the school. Hmm. So that way they had a future. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it is so consistent in these war zones that when you um, meet the leaders of any community and ask them what, what is it that they need the most, their first answer nine times out of ten will be school for our kids. In the case of Syria, their kids haven't been in school for five years. Mm-hmm. And in their view, that's, the, that's the, 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 the possibility of them as a people is, is, is threatened because their kids aren't getting an education. They're not learning how to read and write and, and those basic things. So um, even in Syria, I was surprised when I, I had meetings with the Raqqa Civic Council last year, and I said that we're a small faith organization that would like to partner with you and help you. And um, what is the primary need? They said, again, echoing all of the, you know, the, the leaders that I've talked to for 25 years, they reiterated the same strong sense that our primary need is our kids need to be in school. We can, we can sort this other stuff out. We really need school. So what Tanner showed, showed you the picture of, I think, the third school. Um, and just last week, we finished construction on a fourth, larger, much larger school. And my team tells me now that 6,000 children in Kurdish Syria are going to school every day um, in response to that request. So what that picture represents to me is why I do what I do. Um, Something so simple that my children take for granted. I have three daughters, and school for them was never something that was an option. And... uh, and for that option, for that to be removed, for something taken for granted to be removed, um, has created incredible trauma and incredible, um, again, a threat to their very existence as a people. Um, so I feel really grateful that we get to be a part of, of the reconstruction efforts in a place like Raqqa, where ISIS violence didn't just do all these terrible things, these terrible physical things to people. Um, it also stopped children from going to school. And I think that's what's so beautiful. I keep coming back. Was it was it Rose? Mm-hmm. Um, and and to this four year old child with the thirty dollars. But it's again, it's not just the meal and the tunic, right? It's it's the relationship. It's what does your future look like when right. I walk away? Yeah. Because ultimately, we are going to right. Mm-hmm. And and how. Do you support that long term? What is that statement? And and partners doesn't even just do schools and medical supplies and food, right? I mean, you're talking agriculture, you're talking training, you're talking the community development piece. I mean, 
is there any area where you're like we don't touch that yet and we're still trying to get there well i would say i mean <clears throat> our fundamental methodology the way we approach these marginalized people and the way we approach the war zone so there's all kinds of issues like access and risk and and uh, uh, and and the complexity of travel and lodging and food everything right so the way we approach all of this is relational um, there is no government access opened up for us there's no um, there's no there's no logistical company that can make this work there's it's an active state of conflict that we're working in and what we've found is that even with the so-called category of enemy um, friendship and um, and uh, a willingness to sit down at the border checkpoint or the unofficial border area that is guarded by soldiers or whatever um, that um, friendship and uh, interest in their story a willingness to sit down and have a cup of tea and not be in a rush and not act as though we are the important people who are going yes. to save everybody um, when we approach it as friends and and when they understand that we're here because we have kids too and we would want this for our own children and, and this for us has formed a moral imperative that's why we're here then we end up getting access to these communities even if you know, it's it's said that it's impossible to go there or it's illegal or whatever. That's the Yemen, right? Yemen is a good example of that, but so is Syria. Negotiating access to Syria has taken us, we've been working on it since 2012. And, um, and our access has, you know, has been very creative. The work that we do has, has required very creative means to, to do. Um, and I guess the point is you asked about once you leave, where are these people? Um, and, uh, our view, my view is that these are not, um, objects. I do not objectify them as victims. I do not put them in a category of, um, of, of starving numbers on my annual report. I, and it sounds a little cliche to say this, but. I, I think of them as my own family or my own, the people in my immediate mm -hmm. sphere of relationships, that their lives are complex, nuanced, and they count. And the only way that we will have a lasting impact um, in these communities is, is by treating them in the same way that we you know, treat those in our own immediate community. So we keep going back, and that's why we stayed in Myanmar from 1994 to 2012. We didn't work anywhere else because our, our MO is to go into a community or a village and to follow through and not leave. And us leaving is, so far, it's a function of when access is granted to, to larger agencies, then that's the point where we start to disengage. We don't disengage in relationship, but our program work stops. Mm. 
So like, for example, um, uh, there is a big part of Myanmar where we helped run education in war zones, conflict areas. And this education program grew to, to provide education, if I remember correctly, to 149,000 kids. It was huge. And there were 9,000 teachers teaching in 1,200 locations. And it was three small organizations in a consortium that was started by one of our leaders. That program, um, uh, at, at a point in like the 2000s, I think it was about 2000, 2012 or 2011, um, at some point, Save the Children negotiated access to that exact part of Myanmar. It, of course, it was renamed Myanmar um, by the dictators. Uh, they negotiated access to that part of Myanmar uh, to, uh, to help develop education. So the exact area where we had all these schools, they had legal access now. Um, and we, we uh, gave that entire program to Save the Children. And to me, that was a success. That was, we were there where we were needed in that time of, of complexity and violence. And for those years, those kids got to go to school um, because of our small organization. And we scaled it to a point that was much bigger than us. Um, and when one of the larger international agencies got permission, to, to me, that was handing that off to them was a huge success. Mm. And those communities would still look back on that time as Partners Relief and Development. Those, that's that small Christian agency that's there for us when things go crazy. Um, they were there for us, you know, in a state of active conflict and helped get our kids into school. Um, they are our friends forever. That's, that's how we, I, I believe, they would phrase the relationship they have with us. And that's the kind of relationship that we um, look for to develop in all of these places that we work now. Two two things I want I want to I want to tie into to kind of to wrap this up here is the first one is this reality of we're not talking about uh, and no offense to a lot of other great organizations that are out there that you know are there in the refugee camps or what have you but this is the reality of. You're not a cute small NGO that's on the outskirts. You are physically in the war zone with these people. And not only that, coming from a predominantly Christian country, you are a Christian organization working in mostly non-Christian communities, whether that's Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And you still love anyways. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) We got involved with the Rohingya in, in Myanmar in 2012, and these are moderate nominal Muslims, but they're Muslims, then they have, you know, their rhythms of worship and their Quranic schools and, and their mosques, and uh, they have become our dearest friends, if you ask, if you ask any Rohingya mm-hmm. about partners. Those are the, Christ, the small Christian group that actually cares about us, that loves us. And it's not taking away from the others who do good work. I, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is saying we've won, we've won friends, and we've treated them as um, not as recipients of aid, but as dignified members of our community. 
and we've not tried to convert them. They see right through that. If you, if you're, if you have this like, this, um, this, this evangelistic drive to convert people, I think in general, um, but especially with Muslims, they see right through it. They don't want any part of it, and they've, they've helped me understand that. Um, first of all, that they're very intelligent and they read situations really well, and that um, that. Uh, when there is that motive, they have pushed those people out, um, physically pushed them out, even though those people are sincerely motivated by love, and even though they offer things that the community needs, they push them out because they don't want to be objectified. They don't want to be viewed as just a problem to be fixed or um, as a lost person needing to be found. If that's the starting point, you just don't have anything. You don't, there is no trust. There's no relationship. You're just a yes or a no to the propositions. So absolutely, um, working with Muslims has been a massive faith-building um, activity for me to participate with them, to curiously consider their spirituality, honestly consider it, to be open to the beautiful spiritual practices that they have to learn from them. And what that has done, it's just like, they, they say, are you for real? I mean, do you really, are, are you serious right now? I mean, you, you're Christians and you keep coming and you risk all of this, you know, potential violence and, and chaos and you live in this uncomfortable place because you want to help us. And um, it just opens up a conversation that's so much bigger and cooler mm. than the, you know, raise your hand and pray after me thing. So absolutely, working with, it's, it's an honor for me to work with those people. And all I keep thinking about is, is, is the country I live in and the political division and how we can't even talk to each other on social media or can't have our family at Thanksgiving. We can't handle that level of animosity over political disputes of red versus blue. And what I would give to just take all of us on one big bus and come with you and show the greater joy and love and connection that is waiting for us if we put down all of our Oh, I know that would help. I do. But I think also it's available right here. Um, people drop those that anger when they make a friend. And when it's not a politicized issue, but it's a human being. Yes. It's, but if, you, if you're isolated from contact with the other or the refugee or the alien or the orphan or the poor... If you've insulated yourself against them, you will never get there. You yes. will live in the bubble of, of anger that is supported by, you know, all of this social noise. Yeah. And you and I both know neither side of, of this thing in America is entirely right or entirely wrong. Mm -hmm. And that alone should cause us to come to the table and say, hey, let's talk <laughs> about this. But instead, it's just this relentless anger. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel grateful um, for, you know, that I have been um, in the place that I've been in, but I've also experienced it in the States. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of love here, and there's a lot of generous people, and 
um, and these these polarizations get uh, they they get uh, they lose their power in community. Mm-hmm. That's the place. Yeah, I keep uh, uh, my my interview with Irene Butter, the lady from the Holocaust. Her something she said to me. It's just it's just become burned into my memory. It's the an enemy is a person whose story you do not know. Yeah. Wisdom there. Yeah. Um, so, so as we wrap this up, I, 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 I want to make note that um, you are not funded by any government a- agency or anything of that nature, which leaves out all the political influence and bias in all these places you go, um, which means you are then funded by average everyday people and businesses and organizations who choose to get involved what i'd like you just uh, to sh- share to end this is um what is it that we can do specifically to help partners and then what would you then share as wisdom and advice for us who might not come to yemen or myanmar um, but that we can make those same kind of impacts in our own communities here the thing that our team needs the most, and the reason I'm spending half my year in the United States and speaking at churches and, and civic groups, is, is money. And um, it's not humiliating or shameful feeling for me anymore to talk about it because um, we have these amazing people of, of, I think last count, we had 14 different ethnic groups on our staff, and the dominant the dominant crowd are not white people, um, but these are highly capable people, and they're saving lives, and they're doing interventions that promote livelihood well into the future, well beyond our lifetimes. And what they need from me is to be a voice, and what they need from us is support. So I spend a lot of my time talking about that, and, and, um, and that is the first way that you could get involved either in the work that we do or the work of other important groups. Giving away money is, is not insignificant and it's not bad. It's, it's a good thing to do. Um, There's a lot of really unique, like um, we just did one that we gave that our daughter bought for grandparents was the five for five and alive, you know, it's just oh, yeah. some of the things that you can just buy that it, it it almost makes it easier because you, you know where you're going or what the impact yeah. is. And so your website, the, the partners.ngo, which we'll have a link to that, is is really a very simple way to say, okay, here's what I can give and here's the impact it's going to make. Yeah, our team's done a good job of making giving fun and giving creative ways to do that for children. Um, the other thing that you could do is um, apply. You could end up being on staff. <laughs> um Thad, you're on the short list already. So uh, uh, as we are able to afford it, then we have hired people to to do what we do in a better way. And um, that's another possibility. And I think there's three jobs posted on our website right now. Um, but that's not the answer to the world at war or the answer to um, the world in conflict, even here in the States. The, the answer is community, and at the heart of community is love. And um, we meet in the context of love. We don't meet on the, on the context of um, a shared belief system or even shared values. 
It's the exchange of those things that makes life colorful. It's the interaction with people who are different than us that makes life wonderful. And, um, and so I would share with your listeners and with my own community that um, the greatest thing we can do is, is love those people that are outside of our, you know, our, our bound categories. And out of that um, is a world made new. Out of that is peace. Out of that is Shia, Shiites talking to Sunnis, Buddhists talking to Muslims. Out of that is the kind of pluralism that is destroyed um, in a place like Iraq or Syria or Yemen because of the violence of war. Friends, I hope this conversation left you challenged and inspired to just bringing change in, in this world and, and in our communities. I would encourage you to go to partners.ngo, do some research, and figure out ways that you can get involved. Grace and peace to you all.